official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at wellchurchvt.com. Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. Um, Over the past few weeks, as Ian mentioned, we've been studying the book of Acts, and we've been watching the disciples try to figure out how to do something that they had not had to do before, which is to follow Jesus when they couldn't see him. And so what they did is they faithfully waited for the promise that Jesus gave them, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promise that Jesus himself would be with them and in them. And on the day of Pentecost, which is a Jewish harvest festival, when people from regions and nations surrounding were in Jerusalem to celebrate, the Holy Spirit came and this changed everything. It didn't just change the way that people related to God, it changed the way they related to each other. And so this morning, we're going to take a peek into what the community of believers looked like following Pentecost. We're going to read from Acts 2, uh, verses 42 through 47, and also uh, a passage in Acts 4. Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Acts 4, 32 through 37. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. The word of the Lord. So this is the first portrait that scripture gives us of the church. It's what the church looked like in its earliest days. And Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, does a really good job summarizing the early church in the first line of the passage, the first passage we read, Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread and prayer. And so what I would like to do this morning is to really unpack that line, to really hang out with this line, and then we'll step back a little bit later and take a look at the larger uh, passage, the larger picture here. So the first thing that Luke tells us that the newly baptized believers devoted themselves to was the apostles' teaching. They were hungry for knowledge of the kingdom of God. They wanted to hear the stories of Jesus, his teachings, his death, his resurrection. They wanted to hear those stories from the people who had walked with him. They wanted to understand how those stories fit into the Old Testament, 
the Old Testament promises of a Messiah, promises that many of them had been familiar with but may have understood in different ways. As Adam shared last week, the apostle Peter emerged as the first teacher and preacher among the apostles, and he gave the church's first sermon, and it was a very powerful sermon. We see 3,000 people um, baptized in response to that sermon. But hearing Peter give that one sermon wasn't enough. The disciples kept coming back for more. They were hungry for good teaching, and they frequently revisited those teachings and the truths in those teachings, because that's what devotion is, isn't it? It's when you keep coming back. They kept coming back to the, to the apostles' teaching because it was life-giving and because they encountered God in it. I believe that as Christ followers, we are called to be lifelong learners, And that doesn't necessarily mean going to seminary or getting a Bible school degree or learning Hebrew or Greek or memorizing entire books of the Bible. But it does mean that we continually place ourselves before the revealed truths of Scripture and grapple with them. And this is going to look different for different people. And it may even look different for us at different times and seasons in our lives. I wonder what devotion to the apostles' teaching looks like for you. Some of us are going to go to our commentaries, our concordance, our Bible dictionary. We're going to do some intense academic Bible study. Some of us might take a little bit more of a contemplative approach, perhaps taking a single passage or story or verse and soaking in it, meditating on it until it nourishes our souls deeply. Some of us uh, devote ourselves to the Word of God by discussing it with others, such as in small groups or community groups or with family and friends. And that's in part what the sermon discussion questions are for that we offer every week. Um, journaling through Scripture is a great way to grapple with it and to devote yourself to it. Um, as, as an artist, I just want to point out that I believe that uh, devoting yourself to um, the apostles' teaching can look like spending time with it and writing a song with the words of the apostles' teaching or about those words or painting them or creating a poem around them. But ultimately, how we grapple with these truths in Scripture is less important than that we do grapple with them. And as we grapple with them and devote ourselves to them, we be- they begin to inform our decisions They begin to permeate our relationships. They begin to illuminate the ways in which we interact with the world around us and the people around us, and we are in turn changed by them. Paul writes in his letter uh, to the Romans, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How can we be transformed by the renewing of our minds? How can we be changed into the likeness of Christ if we are not devoting ourselves to growing in the knowledge of truth through the apostles' teaching. So the first thing that the disciples devote themselves to, Luke tells us, is the apostles' teaching, and the second is fellowship. Now, the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia, and this is the first time that this word, koinonia, shows up in Scripture. And the root of the word koinonia is the word for common. And that's the same root as the root for the word community. So fellowship has something to do with community, which is a really important part of our church and our our vision. You you can find community, however, in a lot of places. Community um, isn't the same as fellowship. Fellowship is more than community. 
you can find community around sports. I predict that there will be a lot of community around sports today, tonight. You can find community around music, comedy, theater. Um, you could even find community around the art of making terrariums. Um, I saw a class for it in seven days. If you've been making terrariums in isolation and want to find some community around making terrariums, like there's a class here in Burlington you can take. Um, joking aside, people who are grieving, people who are recovering from addiction often share deep experiences of community. And so do people who have uh, suffered discrimination or persecution. But fellowship is something a little bit more than community. Fellowship is the shared experience of being in Christ. It's the shared experience of God's grace undeservedly applied to our lives. The shared experience of his Holy Spirit working deep transformation in us in, from the inside out. And it's the shared experience of having a new calling on our lives, a new mission, a new purpose. That's fellowship. Fellowship, it turns out, is also countercultural. It's countercultural because fellowship breaks down the boundaries that our society puts up, the boundaries that divide us. People come to Christ from all walks of life because who did Christ die for? He died for all so that none should perish, but that all might have eternal life. And so a big part of fellowship is going to be relating to people across difference. It's a given that as Christ followers, we don't all share the same interests. We don't all belong to the same political party. We have divergent opinions about a variety of subjects and issues. We have starkly contrasting experiences of life shaped by our family backgrounds, our race, our ethnicity, our gender, our class. Indeed, if you look at the early church, the early believers were not natural candidates for community. Some of them were rich and others were poor. Some were Jews, others were Gentiles. Some worked for the Roman Empire, and others were revolutionaries seeking to overthrow the Roman Empire. But when these people were reintroduced to Jesus through the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, they found that they could no longer relate to each other in the same old ways, the ways that their society had prescribed for them. Now they related to each other as family. Jesus said, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Isn't it amazing? Jesus relates to us as his family. And so we who are in Christ relate to one another as family. That's fellowship. So one of the primary markers of family is that family members share things. They share what they have. One of the most basic things they share, of course, is food. Speaking of which, the third thing that Luke tells us the disciples devoted themselves to after the apostles' teaching and fellowship is the breaking of bread. Now, the term breaking bread, it brings to mind the Last Supper, doesn't it? Where Jesus broke bread, blessed it, he gave it to the disciples as a picture of his body given for them on the cross. He asked them to remember him whenever they broke bread. And so the disciples established a tradition of breaking bread in remembrance of Christ's sacrifice, a tradition that we continue here at Church of the Well every first Sunday of the month when we celebrate communion. Now, originally, communion was not separate from the meal. It was part of the meal, and it tended to be part of the meal that the disciples had on the first day of the week. But the disciples didn't just share a meal on the first day of the week. 
it's pretty clear that they were sharing meals perhaps throughout the week. In Acts 2, verse 46, Luke says, Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Not just the first day of the week, but day by day. Another translation says that they were breaking bread from house to house. What a picture of hospitality. People taking turns, um, creating space for the believers to gather. It's a pretty beautiful picture, isn't it? Picture of unity. It's also a pretty radical picture because historically, meals have been where we draw the line between those who are like us and those who are different from us. And this is very true in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, meals were used as boundary markers between groups. And that was particularly true in Judaism because of the purity laws that the Jews upheld. The purity laws excluded everyone from the table who was not ritually clean. And this could mean excluding whole categories of people. Now, the the guardians of those purity laws, uh, perhaps self-appointed guardians, were the Pharisees. They were experts at following these laws. They had 341 rules about how to be ritually clean. 229 of them had to do with eating and meals and the table. That's two-thirds. Two-thirds of their purity laws had to do with eating. The Pharisees were practically their own dining club. But thankfully, Jesus refused to adhere to the dining club rules. And following his example, we see in the early church, the disciples boldly following Jesus' example. Those early church meals are pictures of the kingdom of God. The Gospels paint this as a picture of the kingdom of God, a wedding feast for a prince where the poor are invited to the table as guests of the king. Let me say that again. The kingdom of God is a wedding feast for a prince where the poor are invited to the table as guests of the king. Well, when it came to eating with each other, I don't think that the disciples were necessarily trying to push a social agenda. They weren't trying to reform society. It seems that their new dining habits were simply natural responses to their encounter with Jesus through the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But whether they intended it or not they were engaging in some pretty grassroots social justice. You see, something really interesting happens when people of different backgrounds eat meals together. It reduces our perceptions of inequality. Sociologists have found that diners tend to view those of different races, genders, and socioeconomic backgrounds as more equal than they would in other social contexts. And that's a quote, actually, from a sociologist by the name of Alice Julia, who studies food and eating. In other words, eating together breaks down barriers. And this breaking down of barriers happens faster around meals than in other contexts. Isn't that interesting? Would we like to be a little bit more like Jesus? Would we like to see love flourish in a culture tainted with racism? Would we like to see equality replace disparity in our city and in our society? Perhaps we would do well to invite someone over for dinner or grab lunch with someone who comes from a different background than us. Finally, Luke tells us that the disciples devoted themselves to one more thing, to prayer. But this um, verse is better translated to say that they devoted themselves to 
the prayers. The word prayer is actually plural in the original language. And the fact that the word prayer is plural leads scholars to believe that the disciples were actually continuing in their Jewish tradition of set times of prayer throughout the day using the prayer book that they would have been familiar with and relied on heavily, which is the Psalms. Now, the Psalms were not just a prayer book for the Jews, and thus the prayer book of the early Christians, who were Jews mostly, but the Psalms were the prayer book of Christ himself. In fact, the very last words of Jesus on the cross were a prayer from the Jewish prayer book, from Psalm 22. So in the book of Acts, we're seeing the birth of a new age. The Holy Spirit has come. Miracles are happening left and right. People are beginning to live in radically new countercultural ways, breaking down social barriers. Luke tells us that everyone is in awe of this new thing that God is doing. And yet people are praying those old dusty psalms. What's with that? Well, God was doing a new thing. But he wasn't negating the old. He was fulfilling the old. The prayers of the Old Testament were now just as relevant as ever. In fact, they were even more relevant. New life was being breathed into them as the believers prayed those familiar words. Imagine what the believers were thinking when having been reintroduced to Jesus on the day of Pentecost, to Jesus, the one who said, I am the light of the world. No one who follows me will ever walk in darkness. Imagine what they were thinking when they opened up their prayer book to Psalm 118 and they read, the Lord is God and he has made his light shine upon us. Or imagine what they were thinking when having seen miracles and signs and wonders on Pentecost and the days following Pentecost, they prayed Psalm 9. I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. Your wonderful deeds. I can only imagine what was crossing through their minds when they prayed Psalm 57, having spoken in languages that foreigners could understand on the day of Pentecost. When they prayed Psalm 57, which says, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will, sing, I will sing to you among the peoples, for great is your love reaching to the heavens, your faithfulness reaches to the skies. And finally, imagine how full their hearts must have been when those who were previously needy, perhaps homeless, perhaps hungry, but now taken care of by the generosity of their brothers and sisters, imagine what was going through their hearts when they prayed the familiar words of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What joy and fulfillment must have been coursing through the disciples as they gave voice to those prayers infused with new meaning. We too, I believe, can pray the prayers, which is to say we can go back into the scriptures, into the Psalms, the prayers of Paul, the prayers of Jesus himself, and let those prayers become our own. Of course, I hope that we can, you know, we can, and I hope that we do, pray our own candid, personal, extemporaneous prayers as the Spirit leads us, which is what the apostles, apostles do in other parts of the book of Acts. But all of us at some point on our spiritual journey, I believe, come to a place where we have no words left to pray. Have you ever been there? Where you have no words left to pray because you are overcome with sorrow, or you're in a season of confusion or darkness, or you're overcome with joy. Or maybe you've never prayed before and you don't know where to start. 
When, these, when we're in those places, these words are words we can draw on. The words that God's people have prayed over millennia in which God will continue to infuse with new life as we give them voice. So to sum up so far, we've seen that the disciples in the early church devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread together, and prayer. But we also see something else happening, something truly startling. We see the disciples sharing their possessions and engaging in spectacular acts of generosity, even selling their homes and land to give money to the needy among them. I love how Luke puts it in Acts 4.32. He says, no one claimed any of their possessions was their own. In other words, now that the disciples had a new relationship with Jesus, they had a new relationship with their possessions. That happened at Pentecost. They no longer saw themselves as having an exclusive right to the things they owned. Now, just to be clear, I want to point something out here. The text does not say all the disciples gave away everything they owned, but it does make it clear that they significantly loosened their grip. What explains this generosity? I want to give you three reasons that don't explain it. The disciples were not doing this in obedience to some command. The apostles didn't require it of them. It wasn't a requirement. It was entirely voluntary. And secondly, they weren't doing it because it was virtuous, as if it was going to garner them more favor with God and make them more holy. Jesus was their righteousness. They knew that well. They were not doing this to be more virtuous. And thirdly, they were not doing this to create a commune. In other words, this was not an ideological experiment. They weren't aiming to reform the society around them. But rather, I believe these spectacular acts of generosity were voluntary, spontaneous, personal responses to the work of God in their hearts, as well as voluntary, spontaneous, personal responses to the needs around them. The book of Acts is filled with signs and wonders and miracles. And there's a sign and a wonder and a miracle that I think we can be quick to overlook. And here it is. As a result of God's grace working through their open-handed generosity, Luke tells us there were no needy persons among them. What a miracle. No needy persons among them. I want to share a brief story with you. Kind of an Acts 2 experience that I had a number of years ago. After I finished up my uh, doctoral work at Boston University, I taught there for one year. And I, I had been away from Boston. I needed to move back for the second semester. And I did something that I've never done before and have never done since. <laughs> I found a room and I rented it. I signed a lease for it without actually having seen the room, which is not the most brilliant of things for me to have done. But the room was in a house in my old neighborhood. I used to walk by it. It was a very nice house. The pictures on Craigslist looked great. The landlord was really nice over the phone. The price was right. So I didn't think it was necessary for me to, to commute into Boston from where I was living at the time to see this room. I was only going to live there for a semester anyways. Well, when I moved in, the day uh, that I moved in, it was a cold day in January, a lot like today. I opened the door. It turns out the room was a basement room, which I didn't realize. And the air was musty and cold. There was the dehumidifier didn't do anything. The space heater had no impact. You know, it was cold and that night when I tried to sleep, my lungs just did not feel right. I didn't sleep a wink. And the next morning, I absolutely knew I couldn't spend another night in that room. 
but I had nowhere to go. I didn't have a car. My sister had moved me in and, and, and drove back uh, to New Hampshire. Um, I had signed this lease, so I put a lot of money down. I didn't know if I was going to get it back, and I was going to start teaching my classes the next day. I did not have time to deal with this crisis. Well, it was a Tuesday morning, and I remembered that my pastor at the church in Boston I went to and the elders of my church met on Tuesday mornings, kind of like we do here. Um, I didn't have a cell phone, so the only thing I could think of doing was getting on the subway and showing up at that meeting, which I did, in tears. And they were extremely compassionate. They didn't make me feel bad for making this really um, unwise decision. They prayed for me. And then my pastor said, um, Abby, have you thought about calling Feng Ming? Well, Feng Ming is this lovely Chinese woman at our church who was finishing up her doctorate at Boston University. And she was somebody I knew, but not well. And I knew that she, she was very quiet. I knew that she lived very, very modestly. But somehow he just thought of her. So he gave her a call on my behalf and she said yes. And that afternoon, my pastor and one of the elders moved me out of that apartment in the basement of this uh, house into Feng Ming's one bedroom apartment. And I slept in her living room. I was just going to stay for like a week or two until I could find my own place. But she said, why don't you just stay for the semester? And she wasn't going to charge me anything. Well, I felt really badly about that, and I insisted I would look for a place. But in truth, like the pressures of starting my classes and teaching made that such a blessing to just not have to deal with finding another place and taking the risk of that. And I just decided that I would take her up on her offer. I did insist on paying rent. We had so many wonderful meals together that semester. I learned so much about Chinese culture. I also learned a lot about disability because Feng Ming has a relatively profound disability. She had polio as a child, and she walks with a very serious limp, and she suffered really serious discrimination in her life. And I also learned a lot about faith because Feng Ming is one of the most deeply committed followers of Christ that I know. Feng Ming reminds me of the first Christians, of the early church, someone who doesn't claim her possessions as her own, but who shares everything she has, not just with great generosity, but with great joy. I want to conclude this morning with a little bit of etymology. The word religion, it comes from two words in Latin, which I apologize for not knowing quite how to pronounce. Um, Ligari which means to bind, and re, which means back. So the word religion at its root means to bind back. Think about religion as a binding back together of that which has been separated, a binding back together of us from the God from, from whom we've been separated. And when that happens, when we are bound back to the God from whom we've been separated, we find that we are bound back to the people around us from whom we have been alienated. We are realigned with the people around us as we are realigned with God. After Pentecost, the disciples could no longer separate their spirituality from their social responsibility. You see, when God is at work in our hearts, it shows up in the way we relate to one another. How will we relate differently to the people around us this week and going forward, even this afternoon, because of the Holy Spirit realigning us with God and vibrantly at work in our lives. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And as we sing the last song, I'm going to invite us to do something um, 
that I think will help to illustrate what happened at Pentecost and the way that that plays out in community. But I'm going to need your your participation in order for this to work. I'm going to ask you to do something really simple. I have, I think this should be enough, I have uh, two balls of red yarn here, which symbolize the, the, the thread. They're tied together, so it's really just one super long thread. And this is to symbolize the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to um, offer the, the ball of yarn to folks up in the front, and I'm going to ask you to pass the ball of yarn and hold on to the, the string um, and, and pass it along uh, so that by the end of the song, hopefully, everybody in the room is holding on to this one thread. And just as a logistical note, I would encourage you to leave a little bit of slack so that no one's like getting, there's no tug of war happening. And then um, after the song, I will close us. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community reintroducing Jesus in Vermont through worship, service, creativity, and community.